Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Dr. Jared Bumpers. We recently announced Dr. Bumpers is indeed serving as my co-host, occasionally interviewing me, but often interviewing guests on his own who'll be a part of the Preaching and Preachers story. Jared, it's good to have you in the studio today. And it's great to be here. Yeah, Thank and look, you. you're interviewing me now. This is our second podcast built upon my recent book, Turnaround, The Remarkable Story of an Institutional Transformation and the 10 Essential Principles and Practices that Made It Happen. The previous conversation we had, we told a lot of the, just the broad contours of the narrative, the story, what God's done, the context I, I found myself in here early on. And uh, today I know we're going to walk through these principles and practices more intentionally. So I'm going to toss the ball to you and let you uh, lead the conversation. That's great. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the first episode yet, I'd encourage you to do that. Dr. Allen lays out the, the story of Midwestern and how in the Lord's kind providence, the institution has grown with facilities, finances, faculty, enrollment. God has been kind to the institution. In this episode, we're going to talk about the principles uh, that really served as the foundation for that turnaround. And so uh, we hope to tick through uh, these 10 principles. We'll make it as far as we can, and, and uh, we may have to, to move quickly through the last couple. The first principle, Dr. Allen, that you mentioned is context. And, and so uh, you, you talk about the early, um, the early stages in the history of the seminary prior to even you arriving here. And so I uh, would love to hear you uh, talk about the context of the seminary from its inception to when you took over. Yeah, thank you. And I alluded to some of this in the, in the past podcast, but briefly, you know, Midwestern Seminary was founded in 1957 by Southern Baptist, uh, the sixth and youngest of the six Southern Baptist seminaries. And the summary line is the seminary was founded in controversy and largely endured in controversy. There was a controversy around where it would be placed, and some were arguing for Kansas City, others St. Louis, others Denver, others Chicago, others Jacksonville, Florida. And then you had this new seminary launched and all the hoopla that goes with it, and then, boy, just a couple of years into it, the Elliott controversy erupts. Ralph Elliott, Old Testament professor, and uh, wrote a book called The Message of Genesis, which was, uh, let's just say, very much outside the main of Southern Baptist thought and belief. Uh, in so doing, arguing the first 11 chapters of Genesis were fictional, uh, setting forth the documentary hypothesis on the Pentateuch. Uh, it, it just, it was not good. And so that led to extended controversy, not just on campus, but throughout the SBC and really to the broader Protestant and certainly Baptist world. That led to controversy in the 60s and in the 70s. Then you get into the battle for the Bible. And that is, you know, that is the big, you know, winner-take-all death match in the SBC from the late 70s to the early 90s. And so there was just controversy um, then, uh, as that SBC controversy began to settle down and the conservatives had won, uh, the retirement age president, then Dr. Milton Ferguson, stepped out of office. The seminary hired a new president, Dr. Mark Coppinger, is a dear friend, and he served here for a little over four years. And um, strong leader, military background, no nonsense, accomplished scholar, and really reshaped the faculty as Southern Baptists would want. And uh, his leadership style at times um, created some, some controversy and challenges with the board. He wound up leaving in 99. And then Dr. Phil Roberts came. Uh, in February of, of 2001, my predecessor served 11 years, again, an ambitious leader, accomplished many good things, um, including uh, launching the, the chapel complex here. Uh, other programs like the, the fusion program we launched, which is still a central part of who we are and what we do, bought and sold some property here. 
And yeah, and, and many good things happened, but, uh, but still his leadership uh, was marked by controversy on different occasions. And so he wound up leaving in, in 2011, or excuse me, early 2012. And, uh, and then uh, I've been here since October of 12. And so that's, those are the broad contours of the story of the institution's context uh, that I stepped into. Great. In that chapter, you talk about the importance of context, and then you talk about knowing your context. And so I'd love to hear you speak about your your first several years getting on the ground here in Kansas City and just discovering your context, and then to to move maybe towards application for a pastor. What would you say to, to pastors who are trying to, maybe a new pastor or a relatively new pastor trying to just figure out the lay of the land? Yeah, look, every leader is a person in context, a leader in context. Your organization is an organization in context. You are a leader in context. What animates you? What are your strengths, weaknesses? What are your experiences? What are your ambitions? You're a person in context. Your family, what are the ages of your kids? I moved here, we were nine to four. Our kids were very portable. Now we're 19 to 14. Yeah, I got five teenagers. That's an altogether different stage to be leading in. Uh, then the, the context of your team. I mean, who does God have around you? Who are you serving with? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What are their needs? What are, their, what are the opportunities before you? And then the constituency you serve, what is that context? For many listening, they're pastors. They need to ask themselves, what is my church? Who comprises it? Where we are? What is our story? Has it been a story of accomplishment and growth? Has it been one of, of division and apathy? And so that has to be processed. And so for me, you know, I, I came in as a young man. My context was I was new. I was green. I was eager. Uh, context was God quickly gave me a, a team, both those I inherited and those I was able to assemble here who were devoted to those three words for the church. And, and we quickly set about the task of reforming and reviving an institution that needed it. And God was very kind to bless our efforts through that context. Great. Yes, a, a good word for every, every pastor to know their context, to know themselves, to know their family, and those who are stepping into a new context in particular. The second second thing that, that you mentioned in, in the book is conviction, the second principle. And so I would love to hear you talk about the importance of conviction, especially uh, at Midwestern Seminary. We are a confessional institution, and so love for you to, to unpack what that means to be a confessional institution. Ryan, I talk about leadership, and the leader must hold his convictions. This is chapter two for us, but it's really number one in importance. And I made the first chapter on context so the reader would understand what all we're talking about here. But hold your convictions is absolutely essential. And that is uncommon in this world of higher education, even Christian higher education. Most even Christian institutions put that in scare quotes. Um, they have this kind of dance going with the culture and trying to figure out how do they satisfy the expectations of their, of their supporters, donors, perhaps supporting churches, what have you, with the demands of their students, their faculty, and often that's an uneasy alliance. In fact, one of my very early months here, I went to, to visit a regional institution here in the broader Kansas City region and wanted to get to know the leader there and, and there in a seminary context. And uh, I, I knew from, from knowing that institution that their faculty was way to the left theologically, but the denomination they served was still relatively conservative somewhat. And I was talking to them, to that leader, and I asked, like, how are you maintaining this tension between the faculty you have and the churches you ostensibly serve. And the leader said to me, said, you know, my plan is to hang out in the mushy middle as long as we can. And I don't say that to ridicule that leader, though that, that is a ridiculous statement, worthy of ridicule. I say that more as an example as to how so many operate. Try to hang out in the mushy middle and let other people see in us what they want to see. 
And we determined from day one, we're going to be different. We're going to be really clear about our confessional commitments. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000, we unapologetically hold to. The Danvers Statement of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, we happily hold to. The Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, we joyfully hold to. The Nashville Statement, we, we wholeheartedly hold to. And so a part of our work here is not just to, like, have these and, like, kind of, sort of hold them, but to wholeheartedly, convictionally, confidently and then to hire people here only who not only affirm those, yes, that's non-negotiable, but who are advocates for them. So sometimes someone says something to me like, Dr. Allen, you know, uh, I bumped into, you know, Scholar X the other day, and, and he really likes what we're doing. And, you know, he's written a lot, and man, he'd be great here. And, you know, he can affirm, he said he can affirm our confessional statements. Well, if I'm having to be reassured a person can affirm our confessional statements, bless their heart. You know, they're not coming to Kansas City. I want people who I know they affirm them because they've been advocating them in their own ministry fears for years to come. Yeah, that, that commitment to conviction, even hearing you talk about it, comes out that, that that's such a priority. You also mentioned uh, operational conviction, which I thought was a—I really grabbed onto that term and think it, it's it's a really, really helpful term. So love to hear you talk just a little bit about that. Yeah, we do things in a very distinct way here. Our business model is distinct. Our hiring practices are distinct. Uh, our, our mission is so front and center, and we'll talk about that momentarily. That shapes who we are. Our culture is distinct. And so, like, we're not going to apologize for being different. And in Christian higher education, the norm is mission drift and financially needy. And so why would we want to be normal if normal is theological and mission compromise and financial destitution? No, we want to be abnormal. Right. And so we are abnormal in our convictions being clear, abnormal in our mission, holding that so loudly, and abnormal in our operations as far as operating knowingly within our revenues, being strategic in our fundraising, and uh, trusting God to bless our business model, uh, which is very much atypical. Good. So context matters. Having convictions matters. The third principle you, you talk about in the book is mission. And, and for me, this is the one that and even in preparation and reading the book, this is the one that, that I'm, I'm dying to get to. You, I think you do the, all of these things well, but Midwestern Seminary's vision to exist for the church, if, if people know about Midwestern, they've heard that statement. It's at the core of who we are. And so uh, I'd love, love to hear you unpack for us your mission, how you came to, to conclude this is why the seminary exists and then how you continue to communicate that mission. Right. So, again, the book begins, know your context, and then, and then really these three you know, conceptual, you know, foundational categories. Hold your convictions, define your mission, pursue the vision. And those three build on each other. Your convictions is what you believe. Your mission is why you exist. Your vision is where you're going. What you believe, why you exist, where you're going. So for us, we've been real clear from day one about for the church. And in hindsight, I think that's the primary reason why the board rallied around me as the candidate. I was young, had, you know, 35 years old, hadn't had any executive experience, but uh, I was real clear about what a seminary should do and why it should exist. And there was a sense in that room of, yeah, that, that's right. Like, what else should a seminary be doing? And so from day one, we've been being really explicit about for the church. That is part you know, truthfully, autobiographical for me. I love the local church, served many years as a pastor. My own sense of calling and experience and what I believe to be my trajectory before coming to Kansas City was one where I had parallel tracks running, local church service, theological education service. And then what God did is he began to fuse those together in my heart before Kansas City, and then the seminary shows up, wanted me to lead them, and, and that calling is already crystal clear. But I also believe, and far more important, is not just the biographical side, but the biblical. I mean, Christ has promised to build his church, not a seminary. And so as we are clear and committed to serving the local church, to equipping pastors for the church, 
to training counselors for the church, to, to, to equipping youth ministers for the church, et cetera, et cetera. And I believe God is pleased to bless our work because we are truly strengthening the church that he is committed to building. And so, you know, when you look at the growth of the institution the past 10 years, going from a little over 1,000 students to, uh, to an institution of about 5,000 students these days, you, know, you, you get attention. And our crediting agencies, for instance, especially ATS, has on multiple occasions you know, noted our success and done stories about us and other similar institutions, which there aren't many. And they always ask me, why and how, why and how, why and how? And I go back to those three words. I say, look, we are crystal clear about why we exist we talk about for the church every day. Our students' potential hear it; they resonate with it. Our churches, our constituency, they hear it; they resonate with it. And on the ground, the proof's in the pudding, and that's what we do. We have for the church conference, for the church website, for the church podcast. Every class is taught under the auspices of for the church. Church history isn't just names and dates. Church history is the story of God's providential working to extend and build His church. Theology just isn't you know how many angels can dance on the head of the proverbial needle, but no, it's about understand the great truths of God so the church is strengthened. New Testament, Old Testament exegesis is not just about, you know, word studies. It's about understanding the Word of God to teach it and to preach it to God's people. Apologetics is not just about crafting arguments. It's, it's also about our people in the church understanding what they believe and why and how to defend it. You see, I mean, it keeps going, and the logic must show up in every classroom, and thank God here it does. Yeah, the the mission is central to to who we are, and and even just hearing you, I was going to ask you how that plays itself out, but you've already answered that it, it is at, at the center. I've even uh, a student today met a student today who uh, was not Southern Baptist, was explore from Michigan, exploring uh, other institutions and seminaries, and the thing that drew that student here was the the for the church vision. Now, praise the Lord, they're Southern Baptist, a member of a Southern Baptist church, but that vision drew them here. A lot of our faculty and staff, one of the things that, that drew me to Midwestern initially was that vision, your leadership to communicate and cast that vision. And so really do think that's at the, the heart of, of who we are. Talk about continuing to communicate that vision because, or that mission, that's who we are. Now we'll talk about, I'm getting ahead of myself, vision. We'll talk about vision in a second, but that mission, talk about communicating that consistently and reminding people this is what we're about. Yeah, well, first of all, I probably don't do it as well as I should or as well as I want to or as well as I think I do because vision and mission do leak. And so Midwestern Seminary, for instance, um, like most every other entity, church, institution, et cetera, they're dynamic. They're not static. People are coming and going all the time. People graduate and leave. They graduate and their spouse you know, who works on campus leaves. And so every like beginning of the semester, I'm blown away by how many new people are there. And we do all staff meetings. And so I can't assume they know the story. They should. I can't assume they, they embrace and understand the mission. They should. But I want to continue to herald it. But what is more it's not just heralding so they understand like the box to check on a questionnaire. It's heralding it so they understand and believe deeply of the importance and the nobility of their work. I mean, I truly believe what we're doing is so very, very, very important and so very, very worthwhile. There are a lot of jobs that are important but not necessarily worthwhile. But not just important and worthwhile, so very inspiring. We're training a generation of pastors and ministers and evangelists and counselors for the church and this is Spurgeon College training those folks, but also some school teachers and some business leaders one day and all the rest for the kingdom. And so that is a not just a noble, not just a worthwhile, but an inspiring mission that we have. And so I want our folks to, to be lifted up by that. Yeah. So you talked about conviction, what we believe, mission, why we exist. Let's talk about vision, where we're going, those three kind of core concepts that you've identified. I would love to, one of my favorite stories uh, in, in the book was a story about 
the HLC team, I think, that came and you took them to the conference room. Just just share yeah. that story and the importance of vision and, and even in that story, how it played out. Yeah, it's interesting. As we record this, as you know, Jerry, we're here finishing up uh, several days of having our regional credit, crediting agency on the campus for our decennial visit, once a decade yeah. visit. Well, I'm celebrating my 10-year anniversary. Uh, that day is actually here um, just right upon us. Well, 10 years ago, guess what was happening? I was unpacking my boxes the first day in my office while I was simultaneously hosting our decennial accreditation review. And so literally my first day in the office. And so like no new president should be greeted with that. No. And look, as we've talked about in the previous episode, the campus was in rough shape. Um, it, it just, we looked like a distressed institution. I mean, vultures were circling over Kansas City. And, uh, and, and this, again, the point is not I'm a great communicator. It's just not. The point is I go into this first session with the president, with the president and the site visiting team, and it winds up becoming a three-plus-hour meeting. And I knew they had read the news stories. They knew about the presidential transition. They knew about the financial distress school had been in. They knew about some of the academic concerns that were lingering. They knew, they knew, they knew. And they also knew about the morale challenges on campus, which ought to be here with all those other things. And so I determined I'm going to be as candid as I can be. I'm not going to spare any detail. They think it's bad. I'm going to let them know it's actually much worse. But I'm also going to tell them where we're going by God's grace. And so, man, I, I painted an ugly present, but also painted a, by faith and by the grace of God, the future we're going to pursue. And, uh, and again, I won't get into the, the, the personal details of, of that committee, but there was nothing about that team itself in its totality that, like, they were naturally inclined to root for Midwestern Seminary. I knew their backgrounds, the institutions they served at, their context, and so forth. But what happened is that vision was so very clear about where we're going, talked about mission for the church, the vision, how we're going to pursue it. And by the end of it, the uh, chairwoman of the committee, I never forget, she said to me, she said, look, this is an institution that's in, that's in, that's in trouble, that's struggling. But uh, we have a young leader here with vision, and he knows what, what he needs to do with it, and we need, we need to support this new leader, this new vision. And, man, I, I, I mean, I didn't do it, of course, but metaphorically speaking, I could have kissed her in that moment. I mean, I was just <laughs> like, oh, thank you, Lord, for this. And I don't think it's because I was compelling or charming. I think it's because they, they heard clarity of mission, clarity of vision, and that helped to win them over. Yeah, that story does does illustrate the importance of vision. Uh, I will say uh, to the listeners, you need to buy and read the book. I chuckled as I read it when you, when you talk about this conference room. Again, the facilities early on are not great. And you said to call it a conference room is an insult to conference rooms everywhere. Yeah, it was just rough. I mean, it was a, a tough little place, a dingy little room, dingy carpet, dingy walls, mixed match pictures on the wall. I mean, it was, it was just rough. Everything about it was, it was just rough, you know. I mean, the, the little shuttle car we had was such an – I mean, it was a jalopy that we're driving these, uh, this credit team around. It was a jalopy. And uh, but again, God was kind. Yeah, all, all those things, even in that context, that demonstrates the power of vision. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, again, reinforcing the, the importance of vision, context, conviction, mission, vision. And then in chapter number five, you talk about cultivating trustworthiness. And so you can kind of come at this from from two ways. We can talk about uh, how do you become a, a person who's trustworthy, or you can talk about cultivating a culture of trustworthiness. Yeah. So I think there are a few points here I want to drive home. And I'm looking at the clock here. I know we just have a couple minutes left. So maybe we uh, we just kind of break this in half and we actually do an additional episode. That's and great. so as opposed to just blitzing through the final ones. But Jared, here's what I would say. And again, I, I, this is not just to sell the book, but I think this is an essential chapter and I can't do justice to the topic of it, but our readers will want to dial in on it. I would say a few things on this point. First of all, there's a big difference between trustworthiness and loyalty. And I intentionally steer away from the word loyalty and to the word trustworthiness. Loyalty sounds so much like, you know, 
like, I'm going to fire you if you don't do what I tell you to do and defend me. And if you don't, you know, to your last breath, stand with me, regardless of how much of a rascal I am. And I think we have to be real careful of that. I think uh, we've seen a lot of organizational leadership failures by people who demanded loyalty. And perhaps they got it, but those kind of loyalty at all costs, that those, that frame of mind, led them the organization to very unhealthy places. So I like to talk about church work trustworthiness. I want to merit that. I want to develop that. I want to earn that in those I serve with. I, at the same time, I want them to earn that from me. And so I talk about that in the chapter and how is that earned? And so first thing I would say is, you know, it's a continuum. It's not a, a switch to be flipped. In other words, if, if a person fundamentally is not trustworthy because they break confidences, because there's a character flaw or something, well, they, they still need to be working here. I mean, we're an institution that has high character expectations. And so if a person is flawed or has demonstrated, unfortunately, some sort of failing, well, then they just can't be here. So within the realm, let's say the, the realm of acceptable trustworthiness where they are, within that, there's a continuum. And, and I talk about how, how that gets deepened. So, for instance, one of the examples I use in the book is, like, by trustworthiness and by keeping confidentialities, I don't mean merely that a person would, like, knowingly violate a confidentiality. I mean they would have enough maturity and situational awareness and institutional sense of responsibility, like, not even to inadvertently. For instance, you know, we're at a seminary. This is a personnel work we do. We're always looking to hire faculty. And so there are conversations that are exploratory at times, and we have to have those, be able to have those in ways w- without letting things slip out and someone messing up, because in so doing, you can negatively impact someone serving another place, for instance. And, and on and on we could go. So so, so you, you develop and you deepen that trustworthiness by, by not inadvertently violating confidentialities, by not dropping balls, by not holding grudges. And so I want to, at the same time, develop and deepen that trustworthiness other CME by being a man of integrity, by being a man who keeps my word, um, by not dishonoring employees, by intentionally honoring and even compensating well employees. Um, I, I want to um, always be aware of the fact that there is a, a, a two-way street to trustworthiness. And uh, look, it's, it's slow to earn, but it's quick to, quick to lose. And so every relationship whether it's your marriage, my marriage, your church, my church, this institution, the organization our listeners are, are, are serving at, it's all built on trust. And if that trust is, is eroded, you're in trouble. If it's forfeited, you're done. Mm-hmm. The last thing I'll say on this point, and I, I guess we do need to wrap this up here, the last thing I'll say on this point is uh, we work hard to, uh, to maintain what I refer to as the seven-day window. And this occurred to me a few years back as I was talking to a colleague, and, um, and I just think that's really important. So what do I mean by that? My folks who serve with me know that I have an open-door policy. I mean, if I've offended them, um, if I've wounded them, if I've done something that perhaps inadvertently ha- has breached this trust, um, then they know I want them to come to me, Okay. And they also know that, like, there's a seven-day window. So I think that's an appropriate time frame. So in other words, if it's a momentary thing, and, you know, it's maybe you're, you're frustrated about something, but you sleep on it the next day, ah, that's no big deal. Move forward. But if it's still lingering on a person's mind two or three days later, they need to come talk to me. We need to clear the air. You know, I need to make it right if I need to apologize to them. Or, or maybe that hurt their feelings, but you know what? I actually needed to hurt their feelings, and so we need to clear the air to make sure we move forward together. But it's not an apology of mine. It, it, it's, it may be me tactfully reaffirming, no, this was a moment here. And, and yeah, I did bark at you a little bit. And I hate doing that. Don't want to have to do it again. But, but you need to learn from that. So my point is, I want, my rule is, man, get on my calendar within seven days. If you're out of town, I'm out of town. Maybe we can actually meet within seven days. But at least raise your hand and say, hey, we need to have a follow-up talk. Can, I please, can we please visit? And so there's a seven-day window. That's proved very helpful. 
Also, though, they know from me, I'm living by that too. I mean, I'm not going to bring up something to them from two years ago or four years ago or even two weeks ago or four weeks ago. Uh, if it's gnawing on me, it's probably not going to take seven days. You know, I'm probably going to want to talk with them soon because we need to deal with that and move forward. So I say, you've heard me say it in faculty meetings, no one on this campus lives like in a mental penalty box in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that to employees. I'm not going to do that to team members here. That would dishonor them. That will lead to dysfunction. There is no like personnel purgatory people are in <laughs> and they don't know it. Yeah. And so no news is good news. And so I, I, I'm a happy guy and I look happy because I'm happy. And so folks here can serve liberated, knowing that like they're not trying to figure out where they really stand with the president or the provost or whomever, for that matter, that, no, we're moving forward together. Yeah, there are times when you got to deal with something, you deal with it, and you move forward. Yeah, unfortunately, there are times you have to have a personnel transition even. You deal with that in a hopefully a God-honoring way, you move forward. And so all that feeds into trustworthiness. Well, Jared, man, we have like ran through our time today, but I look forward to following up and recording again. Uh, I guess it'll be the third and final recording we'll do on these remaining principles this stem from the book Turnaround, uh, the remarkable story of institutional transformation and the 10 essential principles and practices that made it happen. Friends, I, I hope you'll get it, not just because I want to see B&H sell books, but because uh, I think you'll be strengthened in your leadership if you read it and encouraged by the story we tell. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.